Hello everyone and welcome to the last Hash It Out episode of the spring 2021 semester. I am your co-host Deborah, and today I am once again joined by my fellow co-hosts Janae and Chelsea. This episode will be released about 100 days into the Biden administration and to mark the occasion, today's topic will be a review of Biden as a president so far. So before we begin, I think it's important to lay down a foundation on what promises were made and what goals exactly were set by Joe Biden. So Associated Press news journalists have been tracking Joe Biden's actions that he said that he would take in his first 100 days. At the time that we are recording this, we are 90 days into the Biden administration. So far, of the 61 promises that Biden made, he has completed 19 of them, and all but four of them are in progress. The areas Biden wished to address in his first 100 days were climate, economy and taxes, government, gun control, health, housing, immigration, inequality, and national security. When it came to completing this extensive list of goals, Biden prioritized the coronavirus pandemic for obvious reasons. His efforts paid off and he actually met his goal early, but I'll let Janae expand on that. So on the 65th day, President Joe Biden updated his goal of 100 million vaccines administered during his first 100 days in office to 200 million vaccines. This is because technically he met his first goal on day 58. Biden stated that I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close. Half of the adults in the U.S. have received at least one COVID-19 shot. The government announced Sunday, April 18th, marking another milestone in the nation's largest ever vaccination campaign, but leaving more work to do to convince skeptical Americans to roll up their sleeves. Almost 130 million people 18 or older have received at least one dose of the vaccine, or 50.4% of the total population. Almost 84 million adults, or about 32.5% of the population, have been fully vaccinated. Now I'm going to pass it off to Chelsea to talk about vaccinations a little bit more in depth. So in addition to meeting his vaccination goals, Biden has also kept his promises to mandate masks on federal property, rejoin WHO or the World Health Organization, support 100 mass vaccination centers, and to deploy mobile vaccination clinics. He is still making efforts to accomplish his other health-related goals, for example, when it comes to expanding healthcare access. On January 28th, Biden signed an executive order to extend open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act marketplaces to review policies and rules that run counter to current administration policy to protect and strengthen Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act and to make high quality health care accessible for accessible and affordable for every American. He also revoked two Trump executive orders. So how do we feel about that, ladies? First, I want to say that I am really glad that we rejoined the World Health Organization because in the middle of a pandemic, who in their cheeto right mind would come to the conclusion that this organization for world health, let's not be a part of it in the middle of a pandemic. So I am really, really glad that that was something that he did because it didn't make sense in my little mind that that was something that makes that that they thought would be okay to do to to disagree with the World Health Organization. Again, I'm really glad that that's a thing that he did because I feel like that was a very, very logical first step when it came to um, addressing health. 
Um, I'm also really like, as we, as I said earlier, he prioritized the coronavirus pandemic, and I'm really glad that that is something he did because I feel that Trump, since the beginning of the pandemic, he saw it as a joke, um, and that that was really really evident in like the whole put bleach in your arm the whole um oh he wears the biggest mask you've ever seen during the debates it's an unnecessarily big mask like it's very necessary um and just like he would always ridicule the pandemic doing things like leaving who and stuff like that and it was just it didn't make sense and it made the the unmatured scientist in me very very angry so I am really glad that that he has been prioritizing this because health, especially in the middle of a pandemic, has been so terrible um, under Trump. So this change of pace is really good, and and as we see, it's 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 having results. He's making results happen, um, and it's already like just for example, IUPUI. We're already going to go back to on campus like life, maybe not to the same extent as we did before the pandemic, but I don't think that if Trump had been elected again, that would have even been a possibility. I absolutely agree with that last statement. Also, like you, I am so happy that we join, uh, we rejoin who? Cause it's just like in the middle of a global pandemic, you think that it was smart to leave the World Health Organization that's known for helping world health issues. A lot. I was I thoroughly confused. Thoroughly confused. Um, also, I'm glad that this administration is is taking this pandemic seriously. I don't think think that the last that the previous administration did that. Um, I think the reason why we are still in this pandemic is because the previous administration did not take it seriously. Because you see other countries out living their best life, like doing things, being very active, and meanwhile. We're still in this pandemic. You still see people wearing masks, which why Indiana decided that they wanted to lift this mask mandate, I will never know, but that is a conversation for another day. Um, but I'm very glad to see that this current administration is taking this pandemic seriously and doing the necessary steps to try to get us out of this pandemic. And I want this to be said before we go into other topics of this of this um, episode that we're still going to hold Biden accountable. Like, don't think that just because we voted him in office, that's going to be the end all be all. We're still going to hold him accountable for his actions. So at least I will. Look, I may have voted for him, but best believe I'm still going to be. And now that you voted in, I'm still going to be on you about it. But um, in the spirit of talking about, in the spirit of this topic, um, I actually am very glad that this administration is doing the necessary steps to get us out of this pandemic. Another one of the, the promises that Biden made and kept was to take executive actions to reduce greenhouse emissions. Um, so Biden took several early actions focused on climate policy, including signing an executive order on January 20th that revoked the permit for the Keystone XL oil pipeline, halted development of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and ordered the review of Trump-era rules on the environment, public health, and science. A January 27 executive order halted new oil and gas leases on federal lands and offshore waters, and he was also able to successfully rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so when it comes to this, again, I just want to say it is so nice. It is so amazingly nice to have a president who believes in science. Um, as a science major myself, the fact that our, our government leader or whatever did not believe in science 
was a trigger. Um, every time I see something about him, um, like put, t- the whole thing about telling someone to put bleach in their arm, when I tell you I was livid. Um, but I am so glad to have a president that acknowledges the fact that he is not an expert and passes that down to the experts and listens to them. It is really refreshing and it, it makes my, my little heart happy. Um, and I'm really glad that we rejoined the Paris Climate Accord um, because as I've mentioned in a previous episode, I do not understand why we left it in the first place. Same thing with the World Health Organization. It was a step that just didn't make any sense. And then Deborah, just to go back to what you were saying a little bit about the um, permit being revoked for the Keystone, Keystone excuse me, oil pipeline, I think that that's just amazing. I remember the protests going on because these pipelines were actually going to run directly into native land. And um, I'm very big on native rights, so I'm just extremely happy that that is no longer going to be a thing. Um, I remember seeing the protest, and I was just really upset that this is basically like breaking a treaty. Like, we're not supposed to come and build anything onto their land. So I'm glad that um, Biden revoked that and they can be left alone. You know, no huge construction sites and pipelines being dug into their um, into their reservations. Um, so just moving into the next topic, which is immigration. Um, when it comes to immigration, Biden easily has delivered some of his top campaign pledges, including halting the construction of the border wall. He ended travel restrictions on people from a variety of Muslim-majority countries and created a task force to reunite families separated at the U.S.-Mexican border. On January 20th, Biden issued an executive order revoking a Trump-era order that had expanded the criteria for deporting immigrants. Guidance issued that day from Biden's acting Homeland Security Secretary told immigration agents to focus on deporting immigrants posing a national security, border security, or public safety risk. On February 18th, Democrats in Congress introduced Biden's immigration plan, which offers an eight-year path to citizenship for people living in the U.S. without documentation, but without border security provisions. On January 20th, Biden signed a memorandum instructing DHS to and the Attorney General to preserve and fortify DACA. The Biden administration is acting on a number of fronts to reverse Trump-era restrictions on immigration to the United States. The steps include plans to boost refugee admissions, preserving deportation relief for unauthorized immigrants who come to the U.S. as children, and not enforcing public, chain, public charge rule that denies green cards to immigrants who might use public ven- benefits like Medicaid. Biden's biggest immigration proposal to date would allow more new immigrants into the U.S. while giving millions of unauthorized immigrants who are already in the country a pathway to legal status. The expansive legislation would create an eight-year path to citizenship for the nation's estimated 10.5 million unauthorized, unauthorized immigrants. Still, though, currently we have about more than 500,000 unauthorized immigrants under temporary work permits and protection from deportation through DACA. As of December 31st, 2020, one of Biden's first actions as president was to direct the federal government to take steps to preserve the program, which Trump had tried to end before the Supreme Court allowed it to remain in place. DACA recipients, sometimes called DREAMers, would be among the undocumented immigrants to have a path to U.S. citizenship under Biden's immigration law. Senate has also proposed separate legislation that would do the same. 
I do want to say that I am really glad that he is reversing that like restriction from the Trump era. Um, that's actually been around for a while um, about not not enforcing the public charge rule that denies green cards to immigrants who might use public benefits like Medicaid. Um, so I'm really happy that that happened because as someone who who grew up around a lot of immigrants, that is one of the, the hardest decisions to make as an immigrant, knowing that if you take help from the government, that hurts your chances of getting a green card. Because that is, is such a difficult decision to make. Do I take help from the government? Do I, do I apply for, for food stamps to be able to feed my children? Or do I, do I starve myself to feed my children so that I can have the possibility to be in this country legally one day? Like That is a, a very difficult decision to make, and this kind of makes that decision a little bit easier by not, I guess, what's the word? not punishing people from having for for getting help when they need it um just because of their um status just because of their immigration status um so that is one thing that like hearing that makes me really happy because i know that that is something that um that affects the immigration population greatly the fact that they can't get access to public benefits without that affecting their possibility to get a green card um and of course in the past, I've mentioned this several times, um, immigration is something that's really personal to me. Um, my parents are immigrants. The majority of my family is immigrants. The majority of my family friends are immigrants. The majority of my friends are immigrants or have family that are immigrants. So I feel very, very connected to the immigrant community despite being you know, a US-born citizen. Um, so I'm really happy with the, the strides that that Biden has made so far. But of course, um, we want more. Um, as Chelsea was saying earlier, um, it is very hypocritical of the United States to be anti-immigration when it is a country of immigrants. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping for more from Biden, but I can't say that I'm not happy with what he's done so far. But more... <laughs> More is expected. Um, um, I'm really happy that Biden has been taking um, a lot of steps to help out the immigrant population. I hope, and I hope to see more from him in the remaining years of his of his presidency. So now we're going to move into the next topic. One of Biden's biggest promises that I'm sure a lot of us college students remember is loan forgiveness. So in the U.S. right now, students have accumulated a total of $1.71 trillion in loan debt, making it the second in consumer debt behind home mortgages, Biden. Biden has made canceling $10,000 of loan debt per student a part of his election campaign. But members of Congress are pressing Biden to go bigger by forgiving up to $50,000 per student. Just on April 13th, Senator Elizabeth Warren said America is facing a student loan time bomb. Shortly after taking office, Biden signed an executive order to extend the pause on student loan payments and interest until the end of September. Formerly, President Donald Trump initially suspended payments at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, and the loan suspension was extended to two additional times. In Biden's American Rescue Plan, a provision removed any tax penalty if student loans are forgiven. The IRS treats debt discharged for less than what's owed as taxable income. 
This would apply to both government and private loans. The forgiveness provision lasts until December 25th, 2025. However, as president, Biden has yet to formally forgive additional student loan debt. And it appears that Biden may have changed his sentiment. On April 1st, he asked Education Secretary Miguel Cardona if it's within the president's power to cancel $50,000 in student loan debt. So looks like he's got some some wheels turning up there, and um, I'm hopeful to see where he kind of goes with this information. Well, as a college student, I'm very excited to hear about them increasing the price from $10,000 to $50,000. Um, I think it's the thing that we've all said before, that college is just way too expensive, and you know, people are still paying off loans until they're well into their 60s. And I think it would be a huge game changer if Biden was able to pull off the $50,000 in student loan debt uh, forgiveness. So sounds like a wonderful plan, and I'm looking forward to seeing more about it. For me, I, um, I carry the same sentiments as Janae. I was fortunate enough to come to IEPY on a full academic scholarship. But the summer, my academic scholarship did not cover. So I'm definitely in debt because of summer school. Um, so I'm interested to see how the administration is going to carry out these plans for, um, for loan forgiveness. Um, I think that that's something that we as the older part of Gen Z very much struggle, and not even just Gen Z, but millennials as well. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest worries of our adult life is how are we going to pay these college bills off? Um, and that's kind of the the hard part of um, higher education is that we hear all our lives, go to college, get your education, and we spend these thousands on top of thousands of dollars um, to get our education just to go into the workforce where we're only making an hour, which money is still money at the end of the day, but we spend all this money on higher education to go to get a degree, to go into a workforce for that degree that doesn't pay us even enough to pay off those college debts. Um, So I'm really interested to see how the administration is going to carry out these policies um, to, to help us out because look, I'm about to be working on the teacher salary and teacher salaries is a whole nother subject that we could get into about how they need to raise that. Um, Cause I feel like teachers are just as much as essential workers as anybody else. But you know, me being an education major, I may be a little biased, um, but yeah. So I just want to say that when it comes to loan forgiveness, it is a, it's a, an important topic for people who have already gone through college and have debt and for students currently in college, but it is also a very important topic for people who have children who in the future want to go to college or people who are already in their junior, senior years of high school looking into universities because while it's, it's money um, and not everyone thinks about money when they think college, not right away, but it is definitely a very important part. And... I say that because a a lot of people, they grow up with this fantasy. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to my dream school. I'm going to do this and that, and it's going to be great. And I'm going to, I'm going to live my best life. And then they start looking into colleges and they see that price tag. And all of a sudden their dreams don't seem reasonable anymore because they can't afford to go to the college of their dreams. They can't afford to be in debt for the rest of their lives. Or um, like Chelsea was saying, she's gonna be on a teacher's salary. She has to be mindful of how much debt she racks up now um, because she has to think about how am I gonna pay this off later? Um, so that 
that kind of brings us into this kind of subtopic of selecting a college, which um, we've actually had a conversation about this before, how the limitations of the amount of money we are willing to spend on a college career um, kind of limits our opportunities to get the, the best college experience that we can. So, for example, I was lucky enough as Chelsea to basically have my college career at IUPUI paid for, um, but if I had wanted to go to a separate school or a different school, that possibility might not have been an option. Um, so when it comes to selecting a college, um, there are a lot of factors that go into play, but I feel like money, for especially for people from a lower economic status, is a, is a big motivating factor. And I feel like for me, coming from a lower economic class, my mom always told me, you need to go to college, you need to... Um, you need to get ahead in life. I was, I'm thinking about it in Spanish. I'm like, te tienes que superar. But she, she always told me, you need to get ahead in life. You, you need to do bigger and better things than what I did. Coming from that level, it is, it is a challenge when you don't have the economic means to go to a university that can, not that IUPY doesn't provide opportunities because it does, but as a lower socioeconomic class, IUPY was one of my best options because I could afford it. Imagine if I could afford going to any university in the in the world, how different my, my options would be. But I felt very limited to the state of Indiana because in-state tuition is cheaper. Um, and then, you know, just having to, to base off of what can I afford. And that is kind of how we, we have this cycle of people who are born with money, keeping money, and people who are born without it, not being able to earn it, because there is this cycle of of limitations for people of a lower socioeconomic class. Like, yes, go to college, but wait, you can't go to that college you've always dreamed of because you can't afford it. Um, do you guys have anything to add to that? Um, I definitely agree uh, with that with that entire statement. I think funding is a very very big thing because I mean if we're being honest like you said I'm not gonna sit here I would be remiss if I sat here and act like IUPUI hasn't done nothing for me um IUPUI has granted me so many different opportunities and I will forever be thankful for the to this institution because of that I honestly can say that I would not be the leader I am today in every um organization that I'm in if it wasn't for IUPUI so I will give thanks to that but Let's be honest. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Had I been granted the opportunity to go to a different institution, I definitely would have been taking my um, my my black behind to a HBCU. Um, that's really what I've always wanted. I've always wanted to go to a historically black college or university. I couldn't afford it. Um, historically black colleges and universities, I do not think receive the proper funding that they should from the federal government. Um, and because of that, they are unable to give out fully funded scholarships to black students. Um, and that just goes to show that black colleges, black higher um, education institutions do not get the proper funding that they need, which in turn does a disadvantage to, to students um, because they can't get the academic scholarships that they need to attend these institutions, which there, like you said, creates this cycle of not having the proper funding because out of state tuition for me to go to the institution that I really had wanted to go to, would have been an arm and a leg. And like I've already said, I'm work I'm working on a future teacher salary. Would have been in debt for the rest of my life. Um, you know, so 
I, um, I definitely agree with you, Deborah, on that aspect. I think higher education funding is really something I really want to see within the next four years of Biden's administration that he works on, that he implements, especially historically black colleges and universities. I've seen so much during the Trump administration, historically black colleges and universities, and I'm not talking about, and the institutions I'm about to mention are great. I don't want nobody to get offended, but I'm not talking about Spelman. I'm not talking about Clark Atlanta University. I'm not talking about Morehouse. I'm not talking about Howard. I'm talking about those little black colleges and universities that you don't hear about, like Bennett College, like, um, what's the one over there? Like Central State University. I'm talking about those smaller black colleges that nobody hears about. Um, I want to see funding for them because there are so many black and brown students who deserve the opportunity to go to a higher education institution of their choice. But if they're not receiving, if those institutions are not receiving the proper funding that they should, those students won't get that funding, which does in essence does a disadvantage to our younger people. Um, definitely agree, Deborah. Next, we kind of want to move on um, kind of away from his pro promises, which I know is what the episode was about. But we also kind of want to address in this last episode of the semester some things that we've seen so far um, this year, 2021. Um, so for starters, I think that it's important to address all of the mass shootings that we have seen in in these past four months. Um, it's been a ridiculous amount. Um, 45 mass shootings have occurred in the last month, according to a CNN article. And let's not forget that Indianapolis itself has had five mass shootings, including um, more recently the FedEx shooting. So actually right now in the middle of this episode, I was checking my phone and they actually finally released the name of those who have been killed and the name of the person who carried out the mass shooting. Um, the gunman had actually been in the psychiatric hospital last year um, for trying to commit suicide by cop, but um, he was obviously released. Um, he was 19 years old. His name was Brandon Scott, and he was actually illegally allowed to purchase those two rifles that he used to carry out the mass shooting. And so that's just another issue that um, definitely needs to be talked about, gun control. And I'm really hoping that being that we see uh, gun control happening under the Biden administration because there's no way that a 19-year-old should be able to purchase two rifles and this is someone who was in a psychiatric hospital and he was still able to purchase those two rifles so there's something that could have been prevented if there was a background check or anything like that but as we know it's very easy to get guns here in America. Yeah I definitely agree that with the amount like the the immense amounts of mass shootings that we have seen not just this year but in previous years um literally mass shootings have been a big deal when, when we were in high school still and into our college careers we have seen mass shootings it's it's in the it's got to be in the hundreds by now like america has it, i i'd say that it's an epidemic in of itself the amount of mass shootings that we have and i think it's about times we about time we address it um and i think when it comes to gun control there's always this this fear they're always my second amendment rights and you can't tell me i can't buy a uh buy a i was gonna say a drug um and you can't tell me i can't buy a gun we aren't saying specifically you cannot buy a gun we are just saying if you are going to be buying a gun do it the right way and be someone who is mentally sound and who has the the right qualifications to be carrying that gun to have that gun for the right reasons. 
not just anybody can go out and get a gun from the corner like it's a candy bar. Like it's not that's not what we're saying that you can't have guns. We're saying there needs to be some control to the guns. It's not ban guns, it's gun control. Okay? So that's what we're saying. Um and this FedEx mass shooting, I think, is a perfect example of it because this is a 19-year-old that just got out of a mental facility and he purchased two rifles and killed people. And people still want to say, we should be able to buy guns if we want to. Again, we're not saying you can't. We are saying if you are going to buy a gun, there should be some sort of a background check to make sure that you are going to use that responsibly. That's all we're saying. And that's on period. Shoot, that's all I had to say. You pretty much, you pretty much summed it up. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like, honestly, I totally agree with our 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 Bill of Rights. I agree with our amendments. I agree that if you if you feel like you want to purchase a gun, you have the right to do so. Gun control is essentially, like you said, it's not banning guns. It's saying we want more control loaded. We wanted, there needs to be background checks. There needs to be mental checks. Like there needs to be stuff that shows that you are sound and capable of holding this weapon. Because then when you don't, when you don't have gun control, you get instances like Sandy Hook. You get instances like Colorbine. You get instances like Kenosha with Kyle Rittenhouse. You get instances like FedEx facility. You get all these different mass shooters. You get post night club like you get the AME, AME church with the Charleston nine like you get all of these different instances because why there are no control on guns like there's a saying what what's the same was it people don't kill people guns kill people is that the saying Yeah, people say all the time, guns don't kill people, people kill people. But how do people kill people? They kill them with the guns. So if people had, if we had a control on the people with the guns, this wouldn't be a problem. So definitely agree, Deborah. You you pretty much summed it up for me. <laughs> so speaking to your point, Deborah, if you notice there's this fallacy or there's this idea within America that most of these crimes, um, when it's talked about with guns, are committed by black and brown people. But if you notice the different, and you know, I don't want to make this a race issue, but what you have to think about it when it comes to America and all these different social constructs that we have, it is a race issue um, because you see it all the time in the media. When you have a black or brown man that commits a crime, you got his rap sheet, where he grew up, uh, how many dogs he had, what was his mom and daddy's life like. You have this whole autobiography. You have this whole biography of this man. Like you looked him up on Wikipedia. But when it comes to a cisgendered white man, he had a troubled home life. He has mental problems. He has mental health issues. Like it's this baby and this coddling when it comes to cisgender white men who commit mass shootings. And if you look at the demographic of most of these men who commit these mass shootings, they are cisgender white men. And this has become a problem within our society is that the media has controlled the narrative that black and brown people are the problem. They are the domestic terrorists within this country. We got to figure it out. But nothing is done about Kyle Rittenhouse. Nothing is done about this man that just committed this this FedEx mass shooting. Nothing nothing was like, nothing has been done when it comes to these cisgender white men who do this. And like, like I said, I don't want to make this a race issue, but that is what it's becoming. Because mass incarceration is such a big problem within the black and brown community. But nothing is being done to control these cisgender white men that get these guns out of nowhere and start shooting up people. Nothing is done. What they do is they buy him a burger. Boom. 
so another thing that we've seen under the Biden administration is a, a rise in hate crimes against minorities, um, specifically um, black and brown people, as, as usual. I mean, at this point, I hate to say this, but I've I've kind of become it's kind of become normalized, um, which is unfortunate, very unfortunate. But uh, specifically with with um, Asian Americans, we've seen a rise in hate crimes against them. Um, I'm mostly talking about the um, Atlanta shooting that happened. Um, to say that I was appalled um, is an understatement, especially when you think of the chief of police when he said that the perpetrator was just having a bad day. I Since my college career, I have had bad days. I have never decided to go out and shoot nine people on my campus because I was having a bad day. And that just goes back to my um, to my sentiment of coddling. We coddle certain perpetrators. I'm not even going to say we because I ain't a part of that. I feel like um, authorities coddle certain perpetrators. And y'all know what certain perpetrators I'm talking about. I'm not going to keep saying what they demographic is. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Um, I feel like authorities coddle certain perpetrators while other people, other perpetrators, do not get that same coddling. Um and I think there just needs to be a hold on what we are doing, but specifically um, making this making this minority hate these minority hate crimes that are happening. I think there needs to be something done about it. And I personally have yet to see the federal government do anything. Um, I know we had talked about them blocking um, the anti Asian hate crime bill, which Janae, I'll let you speak more about that because I'm not really educated on what happened. So to talk a little bit more about that, it was actually Ted Cruz, who I'm sure we all know of, opposed the bill that addressed hate against Asian Americans. As we know, um, with the whole pandemic going on and our former president, who he talks a lot about, um, yeah, he, he called it, I don't even want to say it, but you guys remember what he called it. Okay, and so when you have the president, you know, encourage xenophobia against Asian people, obviously that's going to be a problem. And I think that's why there was just like this surge of um, Asian hate crimes. So if the bill was passed, it would have issued guidance on how to make the reporting of hate crimes more efficient and the process easier to understand for the public, along with guidance, detailing best practices to mitigate racially discriminatory language in describing the COVID-19 pandemic. So um, it was opposed, like I said, by six Republicans, but Ted Cruz is the big fish that um, everyone's talking about. Um, there was a point you made that I really, really like. Um because this is where we go again to holding our administration accountable for their actions and the things that they say. When Trump said what he said, what he named the coronavirus, I'm not going to say what it is because I just think that that was reprehensible, disgusting, all of that. When Trump said what he said and nicknamed COVID-19 what he did, it opened the door for all types of hatred, all types of hate crimes. It opened the door for all types of xenophobia. Um, I often think about when he said when the looting starts, the shooting starts, it opened the door for people to do whatever they wanted to black and brown bodies. I think that not even just with this administration, but not even that with that administration, but administrations to come, 
holding administration accountable for their words and their actions is extremely important because you get people like Trump in office that do the crazy, I can't use certain words on this podcast. You get Trump, people like Trump in office that do the stuff that they do and then it allows the public to think that it's okay for them to do the stuff that they do. And I think with Trump spewing the xenophobic hate that he did against Asian Americans, it opened the door for people to do stuff like they did in Atlanta. Um, and that's not okay. And that just goes to show that with Biden, yes, I, I don't mind sharing my political my political associations on here. With Biden, yes, I did vote for Biden. But best believe, every chance I get, I will be holding Biden accountable for his actions. I'll be like, okay, well, you said you was going to do a distant office. So what we doing? You said you were going to forgive student loan debt. So what So what we doing? Like, I will be holding you accountable. Just because I voted for you don't mean that's the end all be all. You still going to get, I still will be on Twitter at President Biden. Um, What we doing? What we doing? It's It's been over 100 days. What we doing? Um, So, yeah, I, I definitely agree, Janae. Holding administration accountable for their words and for their actions is extremely important because you have to remember the public follows after what administration is saying. If the administration say, what Trump said about the coronavirus? Okay. Well, if he can be xenophobic, well, so can I then. It it opens a door for, for foolishness. Um, so I definitely agree, Janae. Thank you, Chelsea, for, for saying all that. And that's what the point of, of this episode specifically is. It's to to do a recap of what Biden has, has said. Because, like you said, we need to hold our administrations accountable. And this administration, they made a, a series of promises to us for the first 100 days of their time in office. So that's what this episode has been about. It's seeing what have they done. Um, but we also wanna talk about what haven't they done. Um, and because we are trying to keep this this episode semi-short, cause it's already a little long at this point, um, we can't go into everything because there's so much um, that could be said on this topic. Um, and there's still so much you want to see regarding police brutality, gun control, funding for schools, et cetera. There's still so much that you want to see from this administration, so much that they still need to do, so much that they can still do. But the important thing, like Chelsea said, is making sure we hold our administration, regardless of whether or not we agreed with them politically, it's about holding that administration accountable. Um, so that actually brings us to the end of this episode. But before we go, do you guys have any final thoughts? One of the biggest things, because we're talking about, we're pretty much talking about politics and we're talking about Biden. Um, I know a lot of people of our generation say that politics don't interest them. This is not something that I'm interested in. Get yourself interested. Get yourself interested, whether you like whether you like it or not. Get yourself interested because if you claim Black Lives Matter, if you claim that you are for LGBTQ plus, if you claim that you are for student loan forgiveness, if you claim that you are for all these things that you're advocating for, get yourself interested in politics because that's what this that's what politics is about. All the things that you're advocating for. So whether you like it or not, politics is a part of our lives. And if you care about the life that you have right now, if you care about the life of your children and if your legacy, get yourself interested in politics. Um, that's pretty much it. I just want to say that I think uh, President Joe Biden is doing a wonderful job so far. I will say so far, you know, that doesn't mean I won't have any complaints in the future. But um, I think it's amazing that he's um, 
completed a lot of his tasks already and have a lot of them already in the works. And he only has four things, I believe Deborah said, that uh, were left, you know, blank. Like he hasn't started on them yet, but, you know, he still has a little bit of time. When this episode is released, of course, it'll be the 100-day mark, so... Yeah, that is true. We are, like I said earlier, we are actually recording this episode about 10 or 11 days before um, Joe Biden's official, you know, 100 days in office. For logistical reasons, we couldn't actually, you know, record the episode and and release it on the exact same day of. Um, But I also kind of want to go back to something that we said at the very, very, very beginning of this episode, which is that this is our last podcast of the semester. Um, So I do want to say a quick goodbye because I am not 100% sure that I will be on the next podcast episode. Um, And I also know that Chelsea has something that she wanted to say. I ain't going to cry because I'm a thug out here in these streets. I ain't going to cry. But um, this is my last year within the Social Justice Scholars Program. Um, I've been a part of this program since 2019, and I've been so blessed to be introduced to to different people. I've gained friendships within this program, so I'm extremely, extremely thankful to that. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't um, if I didn't thank Amanda and Genobia for for introducing me to this program, for bringing me into this 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 special program. This this program will always hold a place in my heart. Um, Prior to coming to college, I was I will be the first one to admit I was very ignorant on a lot of social justice issues. I felt like if it didn't concern me being a black woman, it didn't concern the black community. I did not care. This program taught me the importance of intersectionality. This program taught me the importance of allyship and advocacy for other groups that I wasn't a part of. Um, this program really showed me what it means to truly be a social justice advocate. So to the social justice scholars program to the people within it thank you i love each and every one of you to the students that have supported this program thank you so much um i'm true i'm truly gonna miss this program uh y'all 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 still always have my support but i i really am gonna miss this program so thank you so much for having me and allowing me to be a part of something that was so special and that was so great so, love y'all <laughs> Um, ooh, okay. Um, so that was it. Thank y'all so much for joining us this school year. Um, and we hope to see y'all again. Stay happy, stay healthy, and as always, stay a warrior. Love y'all. Peace.